0: That any good that happens in our lives, anything that is praiseworthy, anything that is um, used for any good is not by our own efforts, but through Christ, who is our Savior. We thank you, Father, that through Him we have an eternal inheritance, that we who are in Christ are a family, your children. And Lord, that applies not just to those of us who are part of this local church, but we praise you that there are believers in in other parts, even of our own city, that we have the privilege of calling brothers and sisters. We thank you that you are doing a work that is greater than just what one local church can do here, that there is more going on. And we thank you, Lord, that you've allowed us to be a part of that. But Lord, we think specifically of Covenant Baptist and Redeemer Community Church today as uh, they are having to meet outside, as they have for many weeks now. And uh, we thank you, Lord, for their commitment to meet and for their efforts to remain faithful to the ministry that you've given to them, even though uh, they have a tremendous uncertainty as to where they will be able to meet on any given Sunday. And today, we just don't know if it's going to rain or not. You know, Lord, you're in control of all that, but we ask if it would please you to hold off the rain so that they can have their services today too. And Lord, we pray for those who are having to take an even stronger stand because of governmental orders and... and um, and instructions today that are um, that that some churches are meeting in defiance of uh throughout our country particularly on the west coast lord it's not our intention this morning to speak ill of governmental leaders that you have appointed it's not our intention this morning to encourage um rebellion against the government that you have put in place and yet we are asking for your grace and your strength and your wisdom for those who are for conscience and biblical sake having to stand against a governmental order. We pray that you would encourage them this morning. We pray that you would give them discernment. We pray that you would protect them. And we do pray for those who are in the governmental authority and leadership over uh, them as citizens. We pray that you would open their eyes and that you would work to allow these churches to meet. Father, we pray that you would help us to be watching, that we would be careful, that we, in our own situation, would act with wisdom and discernment, that we would not be combative Uh, unnecessarily we pray that we would not overreact in fear or anger to what is going on in our society around us Uh, but we pray that we would have discernment that we would through your word be able to recognize how to live in our current times that we would behave in a way that commends the gospel that lifts up the name of Christ, that we would be both compassionate to our neighbors and faithful to your word and your instructions. And sometimes, Lord, it feels like that's a hard line to walk, to hold both of those at the same time. But we pray that you would give us discernment and wisdom and turn our attention first and foremost to the word of God for our direction and help us stand on it without apology. And Lord, we pray for David this morning. He's suffering and our hearts break as we watch them, him and his family suffer through his health issues. And we pray that you would strengthen him even today, encourage him, encourage the family We pray, Lord, that you would deliver him from this soon, quickly. That they might be able to, that he might be able to get back to work and they as a family might be able to jump back into serving you and not having to worry about what is going on in David's body. We pray that you would heal him. In the meantime, Father, we pray that you would settle their minds Help them to not be afraid. Help them not to be frustrated, but to trust in you. Help them to rely on you to carry them through this situation. Bring it to an end quickly, we pray. Lord, it is our prayer this morning as we prepare to look into your word and as we are gathered here for worship. We pray that you would bring it to our minds, this question, Whom have we in heaven but you? Make this the testimony of our heart that there is nothing on earth that we desire besides you. Because the reality is our flesh and our hearts will fail. But you are the strength of our hearts. You are our portion forever. We have heard this morning from our study of the Catechism, and we're going to see it again in our text as we... Look into your word in just a moment, but those who are far from you, Lord, your word says will perish. You will put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But by your grace, Father, for us, it is good to be near to you, our God. You are our refuge. And so we pray that you would Encourage us with that today. If there is someone among us who is not taking refuge in you through Jesus Christ, draw them in to saving faith today. We pray that we would not only be encouraged by the fact that you are our refuge and strength. We pray that we would live in such a way that proclaims the refuge that is available to all who are in Christ Jesus. And We ask this in his name. Amen. If you would take your Bibles now and turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, today we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 22, which bring us into the account of Noah and the flood. Now, if you've never heard the account of Noah and the flood before, if you were completely brand new to the scriptures, and you're seeing all of this for the first time, you're noticing that there's just a little bit of space here in your Bibles from the beginning. And there's a whole lot of space here at the end, which means there's a whole lot that is a, that is going to come after the story of Noah and the flood. And if this is all brand new to you, you might be surprised to find the story of Noah and the flood so close to the beginning of Scripture. We're only six chapters into the Bible. We're only about 1,600 years into the the existence of the earth. And already we are reading about a massive judgment on mankind. The wiping out of all living creatures from the face of the earth. A cataclysmic judgment. We might expect such a story at the end of the Bible. But here seems to be way too early. How did we get here already? Well, as you might expect, and as most of you know, there is a backstory. We know how things got to the way they were in Genesis 6, and we've been talking about that over the last several weeks. So as we prepare to look at this account, let's just quickly review what we've learned so far. In chapters 1 and 2, we learned that there is a God. We learned that He exists. And we learned that He created all things in the universe simply by the word of His power. He is the creator of everyone and everything. And as the Creator, He is the owner, we saw. He is the one who has absolute sovereignty and power and authority over everything that He has made. So we learned that God is our Creator and that we belong to Him, that we are accountable to Him. But even more than that, we learned that everything God created was created with a specific design and purpose. And so in the world of nature, God created everything and designed it to function and flourish and reproduce and even to sustain itself. In the world of mankind, we saw that God created us with a specific design in His image for His glory, that He created us male and female that he created us so that we would know him and that we would exercise dominion over the earth and that we would be fruitful and multiply and so in all of this we learned that god is sovereign that he is the ultimate authority and that he has ultimate power we learned about the image of god and man and so we learned about the sanctity of human life we learned about the value and the roles of the genders. That God had created we saw the design and significance of marriage and all of it God said was very good but then when we came to chapter 3 we also learned about sin and we began to see how quickly and how deeply sin twisted and ruined that perfect creation we learned that sin is not a mere mistake or a misunderstanding We learned that sin is rebellion against God. It is a rejection of His authority, of His design, of His purpose, and even of His character. Sin is a declaration of independence from God and an insistence to go our own way. And so we learned as we looked at sin and saw the way that it works, we saw that sin primarily is not a systemic, social, racial, or governmental problem. It is first and foremost, at its heart, an individual problem, deeply rooted in the heart of every person. No one is exempt. And the result is that we are by nature separated from God. And we are on a continual downward slide into corruption and depravity. And we witness that slide throughout chapters 3 through 6. And as we look at the world today, this is at the heart of all of the evil and all of the corruption that we see. Now last week when we came to chapter 6 and we looked at verses 5 through 8, we saw a glimpse of where God is in all of this. We saw what God's mind is on the matter and how He responds. We learned, first of all, that God sees the corruption of mankind, that He is aware, that He is not indifferent to it, that He does care, He sees, He is not ignorant, He is not unconcerned. And we saw, secondly, that He grieves over it. That he desires that people repent. That it breaks his heart to see what has become of this creation that he made so perfectly. But we also saw that even though he grieves, he also judges. That he will judge because he is holy. And he must deal justly with sin. But in all of that, we also learned that he saves. That he shows his grace and his mercy to people, and he rescues them from the condemnation that falls on an unbelieving world. And so today, that is where we're going to pick up. We're going to continue to look at how God will deal with the world that has become so corrupt. And before we look at our passage, I do want us to understand from the very beginning that this account of the flood, which we'll be looking at through chapter 9, over the next several weeks, this account of the flood is not a mere child's story. It is not a myth. It is not a legend. It's not a fairy tale. It's true. It's history. And it was universal. And it wiped out the entire earth. And if that's hard for you to imagine, just consider this, that just because we can't imagine something so big doesn't mean it can't happen. And we need to understand that because there's stuff that is coming in the future that we can't imagine either. That doesn't mean God's not capable of it. And there is a parallel here between what we read about Noah and his flood and what's coming in the future. The New Testament draws a parallel between the destruction of the earth in Noah's day, and the coming destruction of the earth in judgment at the return of Christ. And so that makes the study of these chapters all the more relevant as we consider how God deals with a sinful world. Anyone want to deny that we live in a sinful world today? We need to understand what God thinks about it. And we need to understand how God deals with it. And we need to understand how we can be rescued from the judgment that will come on a sinful world. So let's look at our text this morning. We left off with verse 8 last time, and I want to pick up with verse 8 this time. And Look at Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 8 to the end of the chapter. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, Noah, and finish it to a cubit above, and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every, every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. In this text, we see God's assessment of the world and what He plans to do about it. And what we see includes both holy judgment and gracious rescue. And that's what I want us to see this morning. So I want us to notice, first of all, the assessment of the world and of mankind in verses 8 through 12. These are sort of transitional verses into the next section. They're a a summary or a recap of what we have already seen in verses 1 through 8. But in repeating it, we are meant to see the importance of these details. We are meant to see how serious sin is and how urgent it is to walk with God. That's what we need to see in this passage. This assessment begins by highlighting Noah, the righteous man. There's going to be a contrast between him and corrupt mankind, and it begins with Noah. In verse 8 we read, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now we already talked about that verse last week, but I want us to notice it again. Because it highlights the grace of God in Noah's life. That's behind the word favor. And that is the only foundation for the righteous life that Noah lived. And we need to understand that. We need to notice the grace. And we need to notice that it comes first. Before any mention of Noah's godly behavior. That's important. Noah stands as a stark contrast to the rest of mankind. And the reason he stands out is because of the work of God in him. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That is, he received God's unmerited, unearned, undeserved grace. He was not inherently righteous. God set his grace on him. And as it was with Noah, so it is with all who know God, right? We don't earn his salvation by our own efforts. We don't earn his salvation by our own worthiness. It is all of his grace alone. As we sang this morning, yet not I, but through Christ in me. But then when we come to verse 9, Now we see how that grace manifested itself or showed itself in Noah's life. We read, these are the generations of Noah. I've mentioned before, that's a a significant phrase in Genesis. It's a transitional phrase showing us that we're stepping into a new stage of the story. And then we read, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now that is a glowing review of Noah. That is a glorious explanation of what kind of person Noah was. And it is a stunning contrast of how the rest of mankind will be described later in the passage. When it says he was righteous, the idea there is that he lived in conformity to God's standards. That's what righteous means. The emphasis in that is on his heart and on his relationship with God. He lived according to God's revealed standard. It is the opposite of the word corrupt, which we see repeatedly in the following verses. Noah wasn't corrupt. He was righteous by God's grace. He lived in conformity to the standards that God had laid out. Now, we're not aware that there was any written written scripture at this point in history, but it is clear, and we've seen this from the very beginning of Genesis, that God had revealed His will in some way to the people. The expectations that God had for the people He created, He had made clear to the people. So God had revealed how he should live, and we read that Noah was a righteous man, which means he knew and he obeyed God's revealed will, God's standards, God's instructions, and in his design. Noah knew it, and he obeyed. But not only that, but his, re- his righteous relationship with God also played out horizontally to his relationships with other people we read that not only was he righteous, but he was blameless in his generation. Now what does that mean? The word blameless has the idea of completeness or integrity. He was consistent in his character. There were no holes in his holiness. He was not a hypocrite. What he was in public, he was in private. And what he was in private, he was in public. This doesn't mean that Noah was perfect and sinless. But it does mean that he was godly and upright. Again, by God's grace. He was known for being godly and upright, even among his unbelieving generation. You can imagine what it looks like to be known for being godly and upright in the midst of a generation that is anything but. It's not easy, is it? Some of you, Live godly and upright amidst family members or co-workers who do not love God. And you feel like you are alone. You feel like you are cast out. Right? Some of you do. That's what it meant for Noah to live a blameless life. Let's not romanticize that. It was a hard life. It was a lonely life but he lived blameless even in the midst of an unbelieving generation. And then we read that he walked with God. I think that is probably the best epitaph you could ever put on a a tombstone, right? That is probably the most glorious description someone could ever receive about their life. He walked with God. In one sense, it's a summary of what it looked like for Noah to live a righteous and blameless life. But it also shows that this was not something Noah just flipped on and off like a switch. It wasn't as if, you know, some days or in some circumstances he was godly, and in other circumstances he wasn't. This was a constant thing. This was a consistent thing. This was the character of his life. It was a day-by-day communion with God. Maybe that's where many of us often get off the track, isn't it? Because we live godly when we come to church on Sunday. Our faith, maybe at times, is a Sunday morning faith. But who we really are is evidenced in how we really live. And Noah was a man who walked with God. His faith, his belief in God, his obedience to God was not circumstantial. It was all-consuming. And his life spoke volumes to the unbelieving world around him. You know what we read about Noah in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5? He's called a herald of righteousness. A herald is one who proclaims something. He was a proclaimer of righteousness. Is that because he just spoke up and said righteous things? I'm sure he did, but he also lived a righteous life and it spoke volumes to the world around him. You may not ever be able to put words to your faith in certain crowds, but you can certainly put feet to it and hands to it, and you can proclaim righteousness in your generation, sometimes without even a word, can't you? Noah was a man of faith in God who lived by God's righteousness, and who put, whose life put God's righteousness on display for others to see. It's not that he was perfect. I don't think we want to call Noah a super Christian. I, I don't know that he was any better than any other believer who's ever walked the face of the earth. But God's grace had gotten a hold of him, and he walked with God. And he responded with faith and obedience. And in the life and example of Noah, we see a picture of what it means for us to walk with God. Our faith is not meant to be just a sentimental feeling. It's not meant to be a few ritualistic observations and and activities from time to time. It's not even meant to be an appreciation of God with no transformation. Walking with God means a constant fellowship or communion with God that transforms our lives, that produces righteous character before God and blameless character before men. It means acknowledging that we are saved by God's grace alone, through Christ alone. It means living with gratitude for that salvation. It means looking to the Word of God as our sufficient authority for wisdom and instruction in how to live. And it means seeking to align our lives in conformity to that word. It means that our relationship with God and our growth in godly character is the identifying feature of our lives. Not that we are perfect, but that this is who we are. And then that pours out into our holiness and our love and our godly service, Friends, do you know God? Do you walk with God in this way, by the example that has been set forth in Noah? My heart, my desire for every one of you, and for myself, because this is a battle in all of our lives, is that we would not be formal Christians. That we would not be cultural Christians, that we would not be part-time Christians, but that we would walk with God, that it would be, that it would encompass everything we do in our lives. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about how to walk with God while pouring a bowl of cereal? Have you ever thought about how to Use your commute to walk with God. Have you ever thought about how to walk with God while hearing complaints about your boss? Have you ever thought about how to walk with God in the crazy traffic on I-26? I mean, this is where the rubber meets the road, right? How do we walk with God? Not just on Sunday morning when we sing our songs, but every moment of our lives. That's what we ought to be pursuing. Well, we move on and we see in verse 10 that Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That's a small detail, but I want us to notice that it says a little something about legacy here. Okay? The world at large mocks Noah, rejects his message, but he has three sons, who each have a wife, and Noah has his own wife, by the way, and they will all be saved through this grace that God has poured out on Noah and now his family. They are going to be the only ones left, and it is going to be through them that the rest of the world is repopulated and reestablished after the flood. Noah's righteousness apparently had no impact on the generation around him. But his faith had an impact on at least one of his sons. And because of that, Noah's legacy not only reached his sons and their children, but we are talking about him today. And it is through those lines, it is through that line from Noah, that, that the Lord preserved his promise to save his people from their sins. And because of Noah's righteousness, it not only carried on to his sons, but his life and testimony have an impact on us today. How many thousands of years later, right? There's a hint of legacy here that comes from the righteous life of Noah. Listen, don't underestimate the power of one godly life in the hands of God. You say, I've never led anybody to the Lord. My family hates me because I'm a Christian. No one wants to talk to me at work. Don't underestimate the power of one godly life in the hands of a sovereign God. They may be all tiring and discouraging days for you, but you have no idea how much of an impact your godly character can have by God's grace in the lives of others. And it might not be in the place you expect to see it. I'll tell you this, if you're a part of this church, your godly life will have an impact on those around you here. So take heart, you Christians who are weary and worn down. Take heart. Walk with God no matter what. And watch how God will use your life and how He will bless that godly legacy in His time, in His way, in His place. And trust Him for those results. Now, that's a godly portrait of a righteous man that we see in Noah. And that godly portrait is the complete antithesis the complete opposite of what we see in the rest of the world. Noah stood alone, and he stood alone for a long time. But God gave a glorious assessment of this righteous man, Noah. But in verses 11 and 12, we see his assessment of the rest of the world, of corrupt mankind. We read in verse 11, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. There it is again, that mention of violence. Does it remind you of what we've seen already in Genesis? That the two hallmarks that we have learned, the two hallmarks of a corrupt and condemned society are what? Sexual perversion and violence. We see it throughout history. We see it repeatedly in Scripture. We see it in our own day. And that word corrupt is used three times right here. And it emphasizes the depth of the depravity of that society. The word corrupt has the idea of being spoiled or ruined. You want a good image of what it means to be corrupt? Think of a rotten vegetable on your counter or in your refrigerator that has turned black and grown fuzz and has become repulsively smelly. Have you ever found something like that? Certainly not in your houses, right? Think of it. What are you going to do with it? You're going to try to eat the good parts around the bad? No. You're going to throw it away. That's it. The worms will eat it, but hopefully in your backyard and not in your kitchen. That's the idea of corrupt it is rottenness to the core it is completely ruined everything is ruined and it takes us back to verse 5 where we read that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually that's comprehensive it wasn't just their actions that was corrupt it was their thoughts it was their motives it was their words. And so again, we read in verse 12, God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Have we sufficiently grasped that yet? Have we sufficiently gotten out of our minds any notion that mankind is basically good? Mankind on his own in this sinful world is thoroughly corrupt. Apart from God's saving grace, we read about it in Romans three. None is righteous, no, not one. And yes, that means you too. No one, no exceptions. No one understands. No one seeks for God. We have become worthless. Our throats are an open grave. Our tongues deceive. And so on and so forth. It's you. It's me apart from the saving grace of God. That is, that might not be your neighbor's assessment of you. That might not be society's assessment of you. But apart from the grace of Christ, that is God's assessment of you. That's where we stand. And so if that's true, then we are all without excuse. And we cannot accuse God of being unfair or unjust when he punishes anyone for their sin. So when we come to verse 13 and we see the pronouncement of God regarding the corruption of mankind, we are not surprised. In fact, it's the only reasonable response. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. The God's already said that in his own mind back in verse 7. But now he reveals his plans to Noah. And this is a promise of complete destruction, absolute calamity. He is going to wipe out mankind from the face of the earth. And indeed, he's going to wipe out the entire earth itself. But remember, we've already seen in verse 8 that Noah found favor before the Lord and, had, and that he had received grace from God. And so though he is going to wipe out the entire population of the earth by his just and righteous judgment, God, by his grace, has sovereignly selected Noah, has led him in godliness, and has promised to deliver him and his family from that impending judgment. And here we see not only God's holy judgment, but we see his gracious deliverance, his gracious rescue. And so in verses 14 through 16, we see the instruction that God gives to prepare Noah and his family for this deliverance. He says, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. I'm not exactly sure what gopher wood is. We can speculate. Don't get distracted by the details. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. What's pitch? Think caulking. I don't know what else to say. It was something like that that sealed the wood okay and he says this is how you are to make it the length of the ark 300 cubits to breadth 50 cubits its height 30 cubits make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side make it with lower second and third decks have you ever wondered what the ark looked like kids you have an artist's rendering of it on some of your coloring pages today uh I suspect that maybe those pictures aren't quite boxy enough. All right? We want to think about what the ark looked like, and and maybe it looked like that. Think of this. Think of a huge, rectangular box. That's what the word ark means, box. It's used one other time in Scripture. You know where it's used? Don't say Ark of the Covenant. That's a different word. You know where else it's used? i give you a hint. Remember who's writing Genesis? Moses. The word ark was used to describe the basket that his mom made when she stuck him in the river to save him from Pharaoh's murder. God wasn't commanding Noah to build a boat. It didn't need to navigate. It didn't need to maneuver. It didn't need to sail. What it did need to do was float. And it needed to float in such a way that it was so stable that it would not be overturned by violent waves and storms and if you consider the dimensions of the ark and how it was built we realize that it would have been indeed almost impossible to overturn i heard one person say it would have been had to have been turned at least to 90 degrees before it could capsize and that's a stable vessel okay now the dimensions of the ark in modern terms. You want to hear this? This Give us just a little idea of how big this was. 450 feet long. That's one and a half football fields. Okay. 75 feet wide, 45 feet high would have been extraordinarily stable in water. By the way, I heard somebody, I haven't confirmed this, but I've heard somebody say that there was not a sea vessel built to that magnitude until the 19th century. So this was spectacular even before its time. Only God can do that. How much space would the ark have provided? 1.4 million cubic feet, or 95,700 square feet of deck space. It had three levels, which would have been about 15 feet high each, the roof was set above the top of the ark by about 18 inches. That's a cubit, right? And I think that was all the way around. It would have provided not only some light, but some much-needed ventilation. Now, if you're wondering if that was enough space for two of all the animals to fit into the ark, the answer is easily yes, and then some. In terms of cubic feet, I'm told you can put up to 522 train boxcars inside the ark. And somebody has actually totaled how many sheep you can fit inside yeah. a boxcar and then multiplied it and said how many sheep and then all We're not going to do all that math. Suffice it to say that somewhere around 72,000 creatures could fit inside the ark. Seems big. Okay. And there still would have been room for Noah and his family and the food that God commanded him to bring in verse 21 you're talking over a year's supply of food okay for noah his family and the animals plenty big this was an incredible structure it was designed by god himself it had to be because it was unique and specifically qualified as a means by which god would save his people from his judgment That he was about to bring. This could not have been man's idea. They hadn't even seen rain yet. How could Noah fathom what was about to come? Right? But again, just because he couldn't imagine it, doesn't mean it can't happen. God knows exactly what's going to happen. And so God says, here are my instructions. Follow these instructions. You're going to be okay. And that is a great picture of salvation, isn't it? if you think about it, and how God brings salvation to us. It's God's idea. We're not left to figure out how to be reconciled to God because we don't even know the magnitude of our sin, let alone how to fix it. But God does, and God has told us exactly how to be saved, and God hasn't left us to create our own way. There is one way, and it is not only sufficient, it is more than sufficient. We read in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, about Jesus Christ, that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. But there is a way that's been given through Jesus Christ. It's often been said that the door of the ark represents Jesus Christ. I say, no, it doesn't. The ark represents Jesus Christ. He is the only way. Those who got on the boat... Were saved. Those who didn't perished. In the same way, those who are in Christ are saved. Those who are not are not. I had a discussion with somebody just recently who was having a discussion with a Jehovah's Witness, was willing to say, okay, you don't believe that Jesus is God, but you're my brother. And as long as we believe in that God exists, we're okay. And I'm like, no, no, you got to get on the boat. (laughs) And that's Christ. And that is the gracious and sovereign gift of God alone. Only he could think of it, only he could accomplish it, but praise God he has and he's revealed it to us. Now, we've seen the assessment of mankind. We've seen the pronouncement of judgment. We've seen the instruction that he gives for rescue. That prepares us for what we're going to see in the rest of the passage. So let's look at verse 17 now and see the judgment, the judgment itself. To this point, he hasn't told Noah how he's going to destroy the earth, but now he does. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. In short, every living thing on the earth will die. The emphasis here is particularly on the human beings. Every human being, every person is going to be wiped away with this flood. This is going to be the ultimate flood, the flood of all floods. We'll see in the coming chapters that it is universal. It is covering the entire earth. It was a devastating flood with such great force that it not only destroyed everything on the earth, but it even reshaped the earth's geography significantly. But what I want us to notice this morning is that all of that happened by the decree and the command of God. Let us not forget the power of God that we saw in chapter 1. We're going to see it again here in the flood. It tells us a little something about who God is and what kind of power is at his disposal. All creation is at his disposal to do his will, and there is nowhere we can hide. There wasn't a square inch of the earth that escaped the judgment of God. No doubt a catastrophe of this scale was hard to imagine for the people of that day, even as it is for us today. We can't even imagine. But it was real, and it happened just as God said. And to see the parallel with what God will do in the future, it is hard enough for us to imagine another universal judgment on this earth, as God has said. But just because we haven't seen it or heard it doesn't mean it won't happen the flood shows us what god is capable of and how seriously he takes sin and it gives us a little glimpse of how devastating his punishment will be in the future when he pours out his judgment on all who reject him we see that parallel in matthew chapter 24 for as were the days of noah so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware of the flood until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. All creation is at God's command, and what is unimaginable for us is no hard thing for God. And when God's judgment come, and it will, it will be irresistible, it will be universal, and it will be final. There will be no hiding. There will be no turning back. And all mankind who are still in their sin will be subject to that terrible judgment. And what we read about the flood in these chapters is just a glimpse of what is to come. My plea for you, is where do you stand in all of this? Is that judgment coming for you? Are you still in your sin? The plea is to get in the boat. The plea is to turn to Christ. God's judgment is real, and it is to be feared. And His announcement of judgment is not to be ignored. It is meant to wake us up To make us respond. And that brings us to verses 18 to 21, where we see the rescue that God provides for his people. In verse 18, we learn about a covenant God will make with Noah. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Here again is a contrast to the corruption of the world. Now God promises to deliver his people, and he does it in terms of a covenant. A binding agreement that assures and guarantees the salvation of his people. It's a certain thing. It's a secure thing. It's the first time we see the word covenant here in Scripture. But it is a prominent theme throughout the entire Bible. Scripture is the story of how God will judge sin how he will save his people, and how he will make all things new. And that story is revealed throughout Scripture in stages through the establishment of covenants. We see a covenant that God makes with Adam at the very beginning. We see a covenant with Noah, and then with Abraham, and then with Moses, and then with David, and then ultimately in the new covenant. And what we are seeing here in this chapter, in this passage, is a glimpse of that story. What we see here is that mankind is hopelessly sinful and eternally condemned under God's judgment, but that God also promises to save his people from their sin and from this condemnation. And he has provided a way of escape. And look at how he has provided it. He tells Noah, build that ark. He tells him exactly what it's supposed to look like so that it will rescue. And then in verses 19 to 21, we see God's provision as he gives further instructions for what they're to do once the ark is built. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. Why? Because he's going to repopulate the earth with animals once the flood is over. The birds, according to their kind, the animals, according to their kind, creeping things of the ground, according to their kind, two of every sort. I love it. God doesn't leave it up to Noah to figure out what to do next. He doesn't leave it up to Noah even to go out and get the animals. He brings them to him. He says, all you've got to do, take them in and take care of them. Feed them. I got the rest, right? And then in verse 21, he even says, Take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them, for you, your family, and the animals. God's got all the bases covered. Noah, all you have to do is believe and obey. That's it. All you've got to do is believe and follow. I've got everything covered. He has all the bases covered to provide a sufficient and complete rescue from the coming judgment, just as He does with you and me. He has all the bases. When God saves His people, He saves His people completely. He leaves nothing to us, He leaves nothing undone so that when he tells us in Romans 8 that he will even glorify us, our eternal glory in Christ is as good as done. Nothing is left to accomplish. And now we read in verse 22, finally, about the obedience of Noah. Noah did this, we read, He did all that God commanded him. There's repetition there. He restates it. This is emphasis. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. But did you notice that nowhere in this passage have we heard a single word out of Noah's mouth? He doesn't say a word. Uh, He doesn't question what this flood could be. He doesn't question the logic of building a huge, massive, floating box on dry land. Uh, Lord, how am I supposed to get it to the water? We don't hear any of that. He doesn't question God. He doesn't scoff at this idea. And certainly it would have seemed crazy to him at some point. He simply obeys. Why? Because he believed God. Because his life was already all about following God's instructions. He walked with God. And so when God asked him to do something that seemed a little crazy, he had no problem believing and following because he trusted God. And so we read in Hebrews 11, By faith, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. He didn't condemn the world by harsh words. He condemned the world by a convicting example of a faithful and obedient life. The world hated him for it, but God commended him as righteous. Now, as we bring this to a close, I want us to consider what we've learned in this passage from two perspectives. First of all, to those of you who are among us who are not yet Christians, That is, you've never come to a point where you've repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. The teaching of Jesus himself in Matthew 24 and in Luke 17 uses the story of Noah and this flood to warn about an even greater judgment that is to come. Sin is still real, and its consequences are serious. And if you are not in Christ, you are under God's condemnation even now. God is patient and God is gracious and he extends to you an offer of salvation. An offer, an opportunity to repent and to turn away from sin and to be rescued and saved and reconciled to God. This is your greatest need today. There is no need greater than that. God has made a way for you to be saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone as your Savior and Lord. As we are told in John three thirty-six, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's the choice before you today. And again, in 1 John 5, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. As God provided the ark to save Noah and his family, so God has provided his Son, Jesus Christ, to save you. You have an opportunity now. That opportunity will not always be there. I urge you to repent today. Those who got into the ark lived. Those who did not perished. In the same way, those who are in Christ Jesus will live. And those who are not will perish. What about you? Are you in Christ? Or are you going to perish in your sin? I urge you today to call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Christians I want you to consider your life I want you to consider the testimony of Noah Noah lived by God's grace first and foremost and his life was characterized by righteousness and blameless character the summary of his life was this he walked with God and that is the character of That is to be the testimony of every Christian. The one whom God has saved. Sadly, I think we've been taught today in many ways that it is possible to be a Christian and not live according to this character. That as long as you've prayed a prayer or as long as you go to church on Sunday or as long as you tithe from time to time or as long as you're generally a good person, you're, you're good to go. Scripture does not teach that that's what a Christian is. Now, we're not perfect. We all make mistakes. We are sinners to the core, just like everyone else, but we have been redeemed through Christ. We are regenerated. We are redeemed. We are repentant. So Christians, examine your own hearts. Is that the testimony and is that the character of your life? Righteousness blamelessness. Do you walk with God? And is that what you are pursuing today? This is an amazing passage, isn't it? It's really only going to get more amazing because we haven't even seen the flood happen yet. It's a sobering passage when we consider how easily God can wipe out the earth and what he will do to judge sin. But it's also an exciting passage when we consider that God also rescues those who believe in Him. We are going to witness the judgment that God will pour out on this earth, but we are going to witness it as spectators because God will save us from our sins if we are in Christ. Are you in Christ? Are you living for Him? Are you walking with God? Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for the example that we have in the life of Noah.